Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. I don't know if society understands or necessarily cares for that matter how ostracized individuals who are convicted felons truly are. I mean, it impacts where are you going to live? Where are you going to work? What are you going to go to school for? Can you get a student loan? Literally every aspect of your life is dictated by this criminal record. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Ashley Potts. Ashley grew up in a household ravaged by substance use disorder. Violence, incarceration, and trauma were regular occurrences for her. She felt a deep desire to be loved, but the environment meant that love was hard to come by. And eventually, her addicted mother left her a note telling her that she was going to get the car fixed. Ashley didn't see her again for five years. Ashley got drunk at nine, found Oxy at 13, and then cocaine. She was expelled from school, bounced around from living with her alcoholic father to her grandparents' home where she lived with an addicted uncle and another who was deep into devil worship. What followed were years of violence and substance use. Her mother came in and out of her life, and Ashley desperately wanted to save her. IV drug use started and Ashley racked up endless arrests and at one point faced 100 pending felony counts against her. She did not think she was going to live to see 21. Then miraculously, she found recovery and made attempt after attempt to go back to school and to change her life. She was discouraged at every turn by programs that told her they wouldn't allow her to continue because there would be no work for someone with her criminal record. Today, in addition to being an executive leadership, she also teaches some of those master's level classes she'd been excluded from taking. Oh, I love this story. It's such a feel-good ending. And while it's hard to hear the trauma and the neglect and abandonment that Ashley went through, it's such an example of how we can turn our lives around when we're given support and tools. And Ashley did exactly that. So if you're sitting there wondering if you're a loved one or if you are going to be able to turn it around, this story is an example of someone who had everything working against them, every reason to give up, and she just never quit. And where she is today is a testament to the work that she's done. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Ashley Potts. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Very exciting. Your story is incredible. So impressive. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your child, like where you came from, what your childhood was like? Because uh, it was a wild one. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in a small family. Um, I had one older sister and then, of course, you know, mother and father. And things were a little uh, dysfunctional, so so to speak. So I grew up in this environment. And, and I just want to preface that I thought that this was normal. I kind of just thought yeah. that everybody kind of grew up like this. I went to my mother's parents' house all the time, my maternal grandparents, and I had two uncles who lived there. And it was just, you know, my grandfather walked to work every day. They didn't have a car. He would carry groceries back and forth. Everything that they kind of had gotten, my uncles would steal to support their drug habit. And I'm talking microwaves, televisions, anything that you can kind of think of. My grandmother didn't really get out of bed. Um, She kind of just stayed by herself in her room. So I grew up kind of going there on a regular basis and just kind of thinking that that was normal. Um, My mother and father, they didn't really get along very well. My father was a pretty big drinker to the point that, you know, he would come home from the bar and really not make it further than the front door before just passing out. And, you know, it caused a lot of turbulence in their relationship. Literally. Yeah. I don't think I really comprehended a lot at that age. It was just, he fell asleep and my mom's really mad. How old were your uncles? Were they like older failure to thrive living at home or what was the situation with the two of them? Yeah, I would say one of them was older failure to thrive kind of situation. He's actually only 10 years older than me, but his upbringing was just a little bit more bizarre. There were four older siblings and everyone just kind of coddled him and babied him and he never left home until ultimately he ended up in a personal care home later in life. And then the other uncle, and this is kind of relevant for later in my story, he and my mother were very close. They were very close in age and they were like best friends growing up. So he did kind of do a little bit more, but then really his substance use disorder just kind of prohibited him from moving forward in any way. Usually in these situations where kids are unsupervised and adults are drinking and there's drugs and kids are being shuffled around, there tend to be opportunities for people to abuse the kids. Was that part of your story? My story didn't involve physical abuse, but definitely later on in my childhood, I would say some neglect from my mother before. So my mother and father separated and I didn't see my dad for a while. And then my mother started using substances again. And then I would say the the neglect and abandonment started at that time. When did you first get drunk? When I was nine. How did that happen? So my mother started, she started dating one of my uncle's friends. So she started down a path of substance use disorder. And from what I understand that she had a history of that beforehand, but she kind of stopped whenever me and my sister were younger. So this really kind of, you know, accelerated her into that. And whenever she had become an injection drug user, it was kind of, we were exposed to a lot of different things. I remember New Year's Eve when I was nine, we were all allowed to get drunk. And what did you think about that at the time? At the time, I was like, wow, I'm really cool. Like I'm one of the adults. Uh, I Again, I grew up and it was this toxicity. And now looking back on it, it's so inappropriate. But at that time, I just thought it was normal. Yeah. There was a period of time from that New Year's Eve event where her substance use disorder got really bad. And, you know, she would lock herself in her bedroom with this man. And no matter how many times I would cry and beg for her to come out, she she really, she never came out. And, you know, one day she left a note on the table saying she was going to get her car fixed. And I didn't see her for almost five years after that. She never came back. I don't, how was, 
how do you even process something like that? I mean, I can barely process that now. What? How does someone – so she just didn't come back? Like did, did you look for her? Like what was what was that situation like? Yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap my brain around as well. So at that time, you know, I'm – nine, 10 years old. And all I remember is waiting for her to come home and just thinking every car that you heard go past and every car that would come up the driveway, we just thought was going to be her. And my sister and I, you know, we were just like, well, let's just take care of the house and do things and like, and she'll come home. And and I can remember during this moment, I had an easy bake oven. I don't even know if they make those things anymore, but I had an easy bake oven. And I remember just being so hungry, like trying to make food in my easy bake oven. So we had something to eat. And eventually my grandparents found out what was going on. I'm not exactly sure how much time has had passed. It felt like an eternity. Right. And they came and, and they got us. At that time, I found out that my sister had a different dad and that they had contacted my my biological father and I was going to live with my dad, but my sister was staying at my grandparents' house. So all within this couple week time frame, my mom left and didn't come back. And my sister, who was the only sister I had ever known and family that I had had my entire life, wasn't coming with me. And I was going to my dad's house, who I didn't see for a couple years. Talk to me about going to your dad. Do you remember finding out that you had a different dad? Did that make a huge difference? It made a difference because I felt already kind of abandoned by my dad. And then I felt abandoned by my mom. And then I remember just being so angry at my sister that she also wasn't coming. So I had felt abandoned by every figure that I had loved in in that time frame. Yeah. So it really just caused some deep rooted issues of abandonment and fear and thoughts of being unlovable. And, you know, I, the first time I had thoughts of passive SI, I was, I wasn't even a teenager yet. So just thinking that I wasn't good enough to be in this world, that nobody wanted to be around me, all of that really started when I was a child. What was it like going to dad? So when I went to live with my dad, at first it was awkward. My dad had this whole new family and I didn't really understand how I fit into that. And I didn't really know if I fit in. I didn't really think that they necessarily wanted me there is kind of how it felt. It was just an awkward scenario because people weren't used to having me there. So even though I had two stepbrothers, it, they, people were used to having two. So in the beginning, people would come over with things for the two and not three. And it was just, it was just an adjustment that I can reflect back on now as an adult, but they were hurtful moments as a child. How was the stepmom? She's the only one I still talk to, to be honest. So oh, interesting. Yeah. And her and my dad aren't even together anymore. So she she's the only one that I still have a relationship with and that I still communicate with. And I mean, it was an adjustment. I, quite frankly, was not nice to her in any way, shape or form. And I took all of the anger I had for my mother out on her. It really caused a lot of animosity in our relationship. But again, to this day... 30 years later, she's the only one I still talk to. So good for her. Good for her. I know, right? (laughs) What did it look like with your dad? Because he was also a big drinker. Yeah, it was, it was hard. He chose alcohol, you know, alcohol use disorder is a disease just like they all are. Right. And, and it's, 
I can rationalize it. I can talk about it. It doesn't change the feelings that, that it causes. So, you know, he definitely alcohol took precedent over marriage one and ultimately over marriage two. But during that time, you know, I'm 11, 12 years old and I'm driving him home from the bar because he's too drunk to drive. Or, you know, I started playing softball when I was little and he would go to the bar. He wasn't coming to the softball games, things like that. Did you have contact with your grandparents or your sister at this time? And was there any good reason why they couldn't have kept you together? So my father had custody of me. And from what I understand, this is what I was told at the time that I went to live with him. Somehow, some way, someone got a hold of my mother and my mother and father had spoken. And it was always relayed to me that my mother wanted the house and my father said, I'll give you the house the house that we had grown up in. I'll give you the house. You give me Ashley. So essentially, I was like a business deal. He signed the house over to her. She gave him full custody. Oh, wow. Where did she go? So we were from, you know, about an hour north of the city of Pittsburgh. I know she was in Pittsburgh for a while. I know she was south of Pittsburgh for a while. I think it, she may have been in a different state for a while. She always sent me a letter saying where she was and what she was doing. There was always a self-addressed, self-stamped envelope for me to write her back. And I, I never did. I was just so upset with her. Yeah. What would the letter say? Just kind of an update of where she was. Sometimes there were pictures of like what she was doing. She was always just, she never forgave herself for what she did. But at this period of time, she was still actively using and she was still very much being, you know, used and abused by the streets. You know, she was abused by several men and it was just not a good time in her life. So, so you didn't have any contact with her while that was going, while she was gone those five years? Other than her sending things to you, rather? Other than her sending the letters, no, I don't remember any contact with her. Now, I do know I still went to my grandparents' house. I still would go there often. And when I was 15 is whenever I saw my mother again. So I didn't see her from 10 to 15. When did you start using drugs? So I started smoking pot when I was like 12. But when I was 13, I took my first Oxycontin. And I remember I was at my grandma's house. My uncle had given me, he gave me a line of Oxy. I remember I I did it and I puked my guts out. Yeah, it made me physically ill, but I fell in love with the feeling that it gave me. I chased it for a long time. Yeah. And your uncle at the time, was this the was this the one that was close to your mom or the other one? It was the one that was the other one, but he got it off the one that was close to my mom. And so you fall in love with this feeling. I'm sure it's helping with, you know, the thing I find so ironic, I would say about Oxy is like, it's a painkiller. And the truth is it does a great job. It kills all the pain and it kills all the, the emotional pain too. And that's why we're that's why we fall in love with it. You know, heroin and all forms of opiates, like we're killing the pain. It is actually what we're doing. It just also kills the rest of our, you know, it's the, it's the thing that kills everything with it. And then eventually the pain comes back and you have no life. Basically, yes. <laughs> all of those feelings that I described a little bit ago that I had started to develop in my youth, it just took them away. And I, it was euphoric. Yeah, yeah. What was the progression of your using like? Fast. So, you know, I started with the Oxy at 13. And keep in mind, I never wanted to be a, a heroin addict. 
I hated heroin addicts because of my relationship with my mother. And, you know, and then so I started doing oxy and then I started doing cocaine. And then when I'm 16 years old, I'm smoking crack, but I'm still not that bad because I'm not doing heroin. And oh, oh, this is how we justify (laughs) things. (laughs) I'm not that bad because I'm just smoking crack and you're doing heroin. Oh my gosh. I love it because um, I was the opposite. I was like, you're doing oxy. It has all this aspirin in it. I'm shooting heroin. I'm thinking more clearly about this decision. Like this makes much <laughs> more sense. And crack, like I get to, I get to, I do the cocaine before it turns into crack. And I just, I, it's, you know, it's like our addict logic. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. By the time I was 17, I was an injection drug user anyway, shooting heroin and crack. But yeah, it yeah, was yeah. just like, the, the, the logic is like, I'm better than you. So leave me me alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have this progression. I mean, there aren't a lot of people that are going to stop you. It sounds like who are <laughs> no. paying attention. No, because by this point, you know, I told you, I saw my mother again when I was 15 and that was a very bad incident. She was going to be at my grandparents' house. So I went to my grandparents' house. And so I think it's, it's important to note that Again, I I mentioned that my uncles were struggling with their own substance use. And one of my uncles got really into Satanism in like the the 90s into that movement. So he was really into some dark things. And the other one would get really angry. And, you know, it wasn't abnormal for me to witness him trying to kill my grandfather or any of those things. So their paths were, were pretty dark. And when I went to go see my mother, I will never forget, I walked into my grandparents' home and my grandma was sitting at the table, which never happens. So I immediately got the feeling that something was wrong. I looked and I went into her bedroom, my grandparents' bedroom, and I saw my grandfather sitting on the bed and he had a big gash in the top of his head. He was bald. He had a big gash in the top of his head. And I looked around the room and it was like someone had just taken a five gallon bucket of red paint and just splattered the walls with it. And then on the floor was my mother just covered in blood. I remember I was like, what happened? And my uncles had beat her almost to death because she would not give them money for crack because she was trying to stop using at this period of time in her life. And my grandpa tried to intervene. So that's where his beatings had come from. During this you know, violent episode, my one uncle was chanting curses and all of this stuff. And I didn't see her again for about two years after that, because she had to go, she had to relearn how to walk again. I mean, it was it was really bad. Whoa. What happened after this incident? I mean, you you haven't seen mom in five years. This is literally the first time you see her in five years. Yeah. Okay. So then she goes away for another two. What is your life like during that time? That's when I started smoking crack. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I had been expelled from school. Um, I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was, you know, just really rebellious. And the more I rebelled, the more my dad tried to control me, the more I rebelled. And it was just this, this back and forth. So I would start to run away because I'm like, you can't control me. It was it was that whole cycle. So then, uh, yeah, my, my drug use just continued to progress. And it just started to get really dark for me. What does it feel like when you want to stop using, but you cannot? Defeating is is one word I can think of. The first word that comes to my mind, because there were so many times where I've said, I'm never going to use again. I'm never going to do this again. This isn't the person that I'm striving to be. 
but I just couldn't stop. You know, it's like the self-made prison that you just can't seem to find your way out of. Did you think that you could do it for other people? Yeah. So I was arrested at one point in time. I think I'm like 17 and I'm on juvenile probation and all these things and going to an outpatient provider. And I think that I can just stop and my family will accept me and my family will be be happy. And then there was a, another time I, I ended up having a child. There's another time I go to, to treatment and I'm like, well, I just need to stop using because and never use again so I can actually be a good mother. And that didn't help me stop using. And you know, I tried just about any way that I could think of. I couldn't do it for anybody else. I think there's this thing that so many people, they either, you know, many of us relate to and so many family members watch in horror where it's hard to understand how someone could be using against their own will when they're the person giving it to themselves. I think that for me, when I had children, one of the things that became abundantly clear to me is like the strongest bond on the planet, literally on the planet is between a mother and their child. And it can be broken. You can take a mother away from their child. You can cause them to leave, you know, all these things with these substances. That's how powerful they are. You know, I I told you that I hated my mother for everything that she was and all the pain that she had caused on me at this time period in my life. And one day I woke up and realized I became her. So it didn't matter that I knew what that trauma felt like. It didn't matter that I said I was never going to do it. Before I knew it, I I did it all. When you would run away, where would you go when you were a teenager? Oh, I one time I went to my aunt's house, uh, mostly to friends' houses. And, you know, as a teenager, you hear the rumors about yourself that's like, oh, Ashley ran away to Canada and Ashley did this. And it's like, you know, you're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. But really, I'm two blocks up the road. (laughs) Like, I love that you have so much faith in my abilities because I could not find my way to Canada. (laughs) No, I can't even find my way out of town. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, relatable. So there was, uh, you know, one time I I remember I like took off to Ocean City. The one time I, I, I just remember, I just always tried to escape myself. And then it's like that vivid... I take myself with me everywhere I go realization like you can't you can't run away from the pain. Once you had your daughter, what what did it look like from there? Yeah, so I had her and I remember when I held her for the first time, I finally just felt whole. I finally felt like somebody loved me. I finally felt like I had a purpose. But literally just to relate back to that same conversation we just had, it it wasn't enough. And it was only short, short lived and short asking. And, and, you know, all the things I said that I would never do again, it's like, I'll be okay if I just drink alcohol. And and you know how this works. It, I didn't stop at just drinking alcohol. Then it's like, I'm just going to snort heroin. And then, you know, before you know it, I'm, in, I'm an injection drug user all over again. And it got bad. Where did your daughter go? So in the beginning, I was living at my father's house. And it, you know, when my addiction started to progress, he had kicked me out of the house and I took her with me. And I went to a house of a friend who essentially was doing all of the same things I was doing. So it was not a good place to be. And eventually my father knocked on the door and said, I, you need to go to treatment and you need to give me custody. And I was like, okay. And I remember this feeling of relief because she, the responsibility of trying to care for a child inconvenienced my ability to get high. So, I mean, as dark and twisted as that sounds, I mean, if you've been there, you understand, but it was, I gave him custody. 
eventually I did go to treatment after that. Did he, so interesting, he's also, if I got this right, he's also an alcoholic or he also struggles with alcohol in some way, shape or form, but he's telling you, you have to go to treatment. Was that a difficult thing to hear from him? No, because my father at the time, he, despite how much alcohol he drank and how much dysfunction he caused, he never missed a day of work and he had a really good job and he was just this very much this functional person. After I had Riley, my stepmom stopped drinking altogether. She stopped smoking cigarettes. She stopped drinking alcohol and she wanted to do everything that she could to help her. So I knew that my child going to them would have was ultimately the best thing for them anyway. What happened from there? What happened after she went to your dad and stepmom's house? What happened? What did your life look like? You know, things got progressively worse. I remember, you know, being in a house that we had a couple thousand dollars but there was no electricity and there was, a, you know, when somebody would knock on the door, we'd be trying to see who it was. And it was just this complete dysfunctional. I mean, it was like, a tra- it was a trap house. We can call it what it is. <laughs> and eventually <laughs> I went to treatment <laughs> and, and I remember my stepmom drove me to treatment and I was so sick. I couldn't even sit up. I just laid in the fetal position in the backseat of the car, just saying, I never want to do this again. I'm never going to do this again. I I can't believe this is my life. How did I let this happen again? Mm-hmm. And again, I went yep. to treatment and I remember I was scheduled to go to outpatient two weeks after discharge. My daughter's first birthday was also a couple weeks after I got out, uh, one week after I got out. And I got out of treatment on May 14th. Her first birthday was the 20th and I was using on the 17th. I couldn't even make it to the first birthday. So for the people who are listening, who want to understand why or how, can you explain a little bit of like what breaks down in that period of time from the the desire, the, you know, oh, the, the, the birthday, the this, that, and then by the 17th, like what, why is it breaking down so fast? So you really have to look at it in the perspective of not someone who is thinking clearly, because even if you look at MRI scans, it takes months for your brain chemicals to start to kind of come back together. So you have to take it in this moment of, you know, I can only see 30 minutes in front of my face. I can't see a week in front of it from now. That's, that's too far. That's an eternity. You know, I can only see right in front of my face. And then you add the, you know, there's a difference between a dependence and an addiction. And, and if you add that obsession and that compulsion and that all of the pain and all of the trauma and the, I need this and I need this and I need this, it, it just eventually just, it like overloads your brain. And then the next thing you know, you're using again. And and I know that people are like, I don't understand. How can you do that? And I'm always like, can you eat one potato chip? Can you drink one sip of wine? Like what is something that you, uh, you know, you have this obsession about and it, it could be sex. It could be gambling. It could be, it could be anything. And, and imagine the intensity and the high and the, the you know, the endorphin surge in that moment. And, and that is what you're chasing. You're chasing the rewards in the pleasure center. It's not like, I just want to go get high. It is like a complete restructuring of your brain. Yeah, I think that you bring up a great point, which is, you know, we don't see in in fMRI scans, we don't see the brain start to come back online until at least 60 days out, which means that the areas of the brain that control impulse are 
still not really online. And obviously there's variables depending on what you're using, how long, how old you are, all those things. But you know, on, on average, 60 days is when your brain starts to come back online. And then from there, right, that's that's when it starts. And so 30 days is based on insurance. It's based on, you know, it's the 30 days of treatment is not based on science, on, on medicine, it's based on insurance. And so a lot of people get out of treatment like you're describing, and they don't have the capacity to wait that many days a week to be alone, to craft any sense of their own schedule and they trip and they fall flat on their face. If you do it enough times, you start to believe that that's the only outcome. What happened from there? Yeah. So from there, uh, my father told me if I ever stepped foot on his property again, that he was going to have me arrested. So I was officially kicked out. That was in May of 2006. And I can tell you between May of 2006 and September of 2006, I sold my car for drugs. I sold everything I ever had for drugs, every possession, uh, you know, DVDs back then, anything that that I could was, (laughs) and I was sleeping in my car. I know. <laughs> let's let's not talk about how old I am, right? <laughs> okay. Wait, wait, wait. How much how much did you sell your car for? Your your home? Oh, um $150. And I Shut sold it for a bundle and up. a 50 rock. Yeah. And I got a pizza too. Oh my gosh. How old was dare I ask how old was this car? Oh, it was worth more than that. It was, I mean, this is in 2006. It was like a 1990s-ish car. I don't remember. It was this big blue car. People were like, how did it get there? And it's like, you know, you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to start injecting heroin and I want to smell so bad I smell myself because I don't even shower anymore and I sleep outside. And that's not how it goes. That's how it, it's that's towards the end, right? It started when I was nine. And I took that first drink of alcohol and it potentially even started before that when all the trauma and all the social learnings and everything I was learning. So we're already 15 years in the making before I get to here. Honestly, the amount of abandonment trauma that you experienced, I mean, you know, there are some other traumas where you might have been less affected than people, all these people abandoning you. I mean, that is on a small child you know, that's a lifetime of of trying to put that back together and, and you have no skills. And and I think that's something that we don't talk about enough. When we talk about getting people sober, I have, I'll talk to parents and they'll be like, yeah, we just need her to stop using. I'm like, well, what skills are you going to help her replace that using with so that she can figure out how to deal with the pain that she's dealing with because of X, Y, Z. You can't ask her to not deal with it, right? We have to have tools. And there wasn't anyone in your life that was giving you those tools, plus the predisposition, plus all the things. So it was a perfect storm. Yeah, it was It was absolutely a perfect storm. Like I said, I didn't think I was going to live to see 21 years old. And I'm, you know, I'm 20 at this time. And I ended up having four cases pending against me. But uh, it was over 100 felony counts worth of charges. All within four months, I did all of this. I remember every time I went to court, 
you know, I remember thinking in the back of my head, like, oh, I hope today's the day I go to jail. Like, I hope they just take me to jail. And I was never going to deliberately, I'm not, I wasn't gonna be like, hey, pick me, send me to jail. Just in the back of my mind, I was like, I, I, I hope today's the day. Like, and I got ROR every single time released on my own recognizance. So I essentially was trusted to come back to court. They, they just kept doing it. And I just remember being so angry because I, at least if I was in jail, I had had somewhere to sleep. And at least if I was in jail, I had something to eat. And because towards the end of my addiction, it wasn't just about how are you going to get high and how are you going to get the money to get high? It was about where are you going to sleep tonight? What are you going to do? You know, I was, I was 20. I wasn't even old enough to rent a hotel room. It was a tough time. It was a really bad summer. What is being homeless, how does that change you? For me, it changed the fact of you don't realize what you have until you have nothing. I can't to this day, I refuse to go one day without getting a shower. I refuse to go one day without washing my hair. And people will be like, you wash your hair every day. I'm like, you don't understand. I, you know, the brush, the brushing of my teeth, like all of these basic hygiene things that I just have this great deep appreciation for um, sleeping in the same bed every single night. You just can't put a price tag on any of those things. And unless you've not had them, you don't realize how wonderful and what a privilege they are to have. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hey, everybody, just want to jump in here and let you know about Lion Rock Recovery's specialized program for nurses who are struggling with alcohol use or substance use disorder or are just sober curious. We currently have a specialized program that works with nurses' trauma, nurses' scheduling, and even the importance of anonymity. For more information, go to lionrockrecovery.com, check out programs, specialized recovery programs, and there you will find our nurses' program. You can also go to lionrockrecovery.com and chat with us or call us at 800-258-6550 to find out more. How did you get sober? How did like what was how did it become different? Yeah, so I remember there were periods of time throughout my journey that I tried a multitude of things just to take the pain away. You know, I used to think that if I would starve myself enough, you know, if I was skinny, I would be pretty, and if I was pretty, someone would love me. So I just started starving myself. You know, all of these, all of these thoughts. You know, I was self mutilate and carve and and do things. And towards the end, you know, there was nothing that was taking that pain away, and it was just I remember I woke up and I'm like, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know how I got here. I, I don't know any of these things. And I remember saying to myself, you know, I'm going to try this one more time or um, I'm going to die. And I was either going to kill myself or I was going to overdose. Those were my only two outs. I, I just have to give this one full, honest effort of everything I got and, and see what happens. What happened? I never used again. So I went to treatment and I spent seven days in detox and it was brutal. It was a really rough time. I, I, I was so sick. They had to keep extending my days. And they sent me over into the rehab portion. I remember I, I spent about 29 days there. But what clicked for me, I knew I didn't want to use again. But that's not what kept me in treatment. What kept me in treatment is... I woke up every day and I got a shower and I got food and then I got to sleep in that same bed every night. And it was like, if you follow these rules, this is what you, this is what you get. And it was like, I can do this. You know, my father tried to impose rules on me, but it was just this, this push pull kind of back and forth. So it was just like, okay, 
stop being rebellious, like for once in your life, because I was angry and I fought with everybody. It was just, I was so annoying, I'm sure. And I just remember being like, okay, like just do this. And this is your reward. Even whenever there were people that I was close to in the treatment facility, they were leaving AMA. I I remember I had the opportunity to leave AMA and I said no, and I stayed. And who knows what would have happened if I would have chose to leave that day. But I stayed and I stayed less because I wanted to never use again and more because I wanted to have somewhere to lay my head down at night. Yeah. Whatever gets you there, right? Yeah, that's right. And I spent 29 days there and then I went to a halfway house for six months after. So you're in this this halfway house and what starts to, you know, how do you start to put your life back together? Yeah. So the first thing that I did is I turned myself in to all of these municipalities that were looking for me at this period of time. Everyone just said, stay where you are. We're going to get the court proceedings going. So nobody came and took me out of the halfway house. I gave them my location. They, They just wanted me to stay there. So I had started that process. Right after I got out of the halfway house, I had to go to court for all of these charges. It was my sentencing court. By this time, I had gone to like this vocational program to try to learn how to write a job resume and really kind of get some things down. And I had gotten this job. I had completed rehab and I, I had completed the halfway house and doing all these things. And I went to sentencing court and I had signed a plea agreement that said I was going to do uh two years minus a day. Cause if you do more than two years, you, you have to go upstate. So I was going to do two years minus a day and they were going to keep me in the county jail. And my attorney wanted to get me house arrest and, and all of these things. And I'll never forget. I went to sentencing court and the judge looked at me and he had granted me 216 days time served, which that's the amount of days I spent in treatment with the rehab in the halfway house. And he granted me immediate parole. I had parole up until that two year mark. And then I had five years of probation after that. And I had a couple thousand dollars worth of fines. So he had given me a new chance at life. Within that, I do want to say I also became convicted of two felonies and nine misdemeanors that day. So I did get convicted, but I did not go to state prison, which is where I started this process is where I was going to go. What was that like in terms of managing a record and trying to build a new life and go to school and stuff? Oh, gosh. I don't know if society understands or necessarily cares, for that matter, how ostracized individuals who are convicted felons truly are. I mean, it impacts where are you going to live? Where are you going to work? What are you going to go to school for? Can you get a student loan? Literally every aspect of your life is dictated by this criminal record. So I had gotten that job that I told you about. I got that before I became convicted. But also keep in mind, I made $6.25 an hour and I didn't have a car and I'm walking to work. You know, whenever I decided that I wanted to go to college, I had to take I had to take adult basic classes at CareerLink with everyone who was going to get their GED, even though I had already graduated high school. And then I went to community college, but I still had to take some prereq courses before I could even take college level courses. And then by the time I did all of that, I started taking college level courses and I'll never forget. And and I was going for social work. And then at this period of time in my life, I was like, I don't want to be a social worker. Everybody's a social worker. So I transferred to a vocational school to do something in the medical field. And I went to school for a year, six hour classes, four days a week. And the time came down to do a practicum and nowhere in Ohio, Pennsylvania or West Virginia would accept me. And I was kicked out of college. So it was, it was pretty startling for me. Nowhere. You couldn't, 
Wait, in three states? Nowhere that the school was affiliated with would accept me for an in-person practicum because of my criminal record. And it just reinforced all of those thought distortions that I had my whole life. Like, you're not good enough to be here. Why are you even here? Like, you're not relevant. You don't deserve it. Nobody likes you. All of those things really kind of surfaced at this period of time in my life. How did you fight them so that you could get back to school? So uh, I took a year off um, of school because I was I was pretty disheartened at that period of time. And I started working in behavioral health when I was about 22 years old. Um, so I was around a lot of people that would provide support and encouragement and, and that sort of thing. And, and I remember I just got to the point where I wasn't going to let somebody else dictate my future. And I went to go back to school. And it was basically like my whole life, it was always, Ashley, why can't you be more like so-and-so or Ashley be more like so-and-so? I was never just okay being Ashley. And then I go to go to school and it's like, nope, you're not good enough for this either. So it was just one closed door after the other. So I decided I was going back to school. And when I went back to school, when I went to talk to the career advisors, all they did was hand me a pamphlet of everything that I could not do with my life. So it really taught me that the universities aren't necessarily set up to deal with individuals who have a criminal record. I remember again, just being so defeated. And I said to myself, like, I'm I'm going to fight and I'm going to fight the good fight. And it's those transferable skills. I was a fighter my whole life and a very street version of the term. But then I realized I could turn that fight and that anger and channel it towards advocacy and movements and like making things happen. And I decided I was going to go back and finish my bachelor's degree and I was going to go get my bachelor's degree in social work. And it was the same thing. Like, yes, we can accept you into the program but we can't guarantee you an internship because of your record. So I did not pursue that path. I went and I got a very general degree. I got a bachelor's degree of art in liberal studies that required no internship. But then I had also at that same time uh, decided that I was going to keep going and I wanted to get a master's degree. And no one in my family at that period of time had a bachelor's degree, let alone a master's degree. And I decided I was going to go to get a master's degree. And they said the same thing. Yes, we accept you into the program. No, we can't guarantee you an internship. And I said, I don't care because I can find my own. Like, I don't need you. I had started where I'd been working in behavioral health this whole time. And so I went and I got my master's degree. And then I went on and I got my LCSW. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And now I actually, for the last two years, part time, I've been adjunct teaching graduate school social work students at that same school that I got my master's degree from. And this is really important because of all the things that I was told the whole time. But also my first therapist, when I entered that halfway house, told me I wasn't college material. And now I'm teaching graduate level college courses. Why would they tell you that? That's crazy. Yeah. They just thought that I should just not go to school and that I should just pursue being like a construction worker or something. I was too street to be much more than that. It's wild what we can turn into when we get our lives together. Like the transformation is, I've seen amazing things. Tell me about building the relationship back with your daughter. What, what did that look like? 
Yeah. So she basically has lived with my stepmom her entire life. There was that those couple months that she lived with me before I went to that first inpatient treatment center that I discussed, but she was with her all throughout that. Uh, she was actually adopted by my father and my stepmother when she was two or three. So I legally do not have custody anymore. But I know I made the best decision for her because at that period of time in my life, I was making $6.25 an hour. I was in a three-quarter house and I was about to start going interferon treatment. Yeah, right. Winning. Oh, interferon treatment too. Yeah. So it was a really, yeah, I had hep C. I had to do interferon for 48 weeks and I got really, really sick uh, when I was on interferon. I was always kind of involved, but from the side, our relationship just looked different. My stepmom ended up getting a divorce from my dad, probably, gosh, almost 10 or plus years ago at this point, maybe in 15. It's been a long time. But her and I decided that we were going to do the best that we could to make sure that she had a really good life. And the really cool thing is when she was nine, we decided to take her to Disney World. It was not a financially good choice, right? I made $26,000 a year and I put the whole thing on a credit card. Disney World is never a financially good choice. Let's just (laughs) just put that out there. Right. For anyone. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone, let alone someone who's making $26,000 a year. But we decided to go and it was one of the best decisions. And I I don't support people making bad financial decisions. That's not the point. But what what we did is we started a lifetime of memories. So she's 18 now. She goes to Disney World every year. I was determined to give her the childhood that I never had. And we would be there and she would call me little mommy and my stepmom mom. And, you know, things are only as weird as you make them. So she didn't view it as weird. And other people might like look around and say things, but like no, nobody cared. And we never made things weird for her. So now she's 18. She's in college. And this April, we're going to run a, a 10-mile marathon in Disney World. So... <laughs> Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Do you work with people or ever talk about reentry and expunging records and things like that? Is that part of the advocacy that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I am all for education on pardons and what does that mean and education on education on what are your rights as a convicted felon because there is a lot of misconceptions out there as to what that means, but then also education on expungement and and pardons and I'm happy to say it took well over 5 years but I did get pardoned so I'm I spent 12 years of my life as a convicted felon, but I am no longer a convicted felon and I felt like I that really gave me my life back because I wouldn't have been afforded the opportunity I have even today as I would have whenever I had that record. And I haven't been pardoned for that long. It's it's only been four years. Wow. And the change in that four years is that significant? It's very significant. I mean, even at, you know, in 2016, 17, 18, it didn't matter what income I had or what, how many years had passed. It's when you go to apply for that job or you go to look for that rental property or whatever it is, the chances of you getting it are slim. It is my understanding that expungement is extremely difficult to do, that people talk about like a pathway to expunge your record, but it that it isn't as, you know, that sounds like something they would have forms and you would fill out, you would, you would do this process and then your record would be expunged. My understanding is that it is more complicated. Is that true? 
Yeah, it's a lot more complicated. So in Pennsylvania, you have no right to seek expungement if you've ever pled guilty to a crime. And so you have to get a pardon before you can seek expungement and getting a pardon in PA. Now, again, I do believe that things have changed. However, when I started the pardon process, you first have to ask for the application. And then once you get the application, the application has to be typed on a typewriter not a computer, not printed out and typed in Word, none of those things. It has to be typed on a typewriter. So imagine trying to find somebody who has a typewriter and then knows how to use it. Like that's one, that's step one. Wow. Wow. I know it's just barrier after barrier. Like it's just like ridiculous, absurd things that prohibit, not prohibit, that prevent people from being able to move forward. (laughs) That's such a bizarre one. Yeah, it's stupid. And they like these. Okay. So then you do you, so you got a typewriter and then is it stuff like that? Like over and over and over again. And, and you're just trying to like, there's a process, but there are these, there's just all these things, right? So luckily there were people that were helping me get this pardon. So someone had a typewriter. they, they had a typewriter and somebody who knew how to use it. So we got together, you type it on a typewriter, you need five copies, five headshot photos, five supporting copies of of supporting ancillary documents, send it all in. About a year or so goes by, they acknowledged receipt of my pardon. And then the next step was they were going to review it. And if you made it past the review process, they would send someone from the state probation and parole board out to your house to conduct a personal interview of of you. Then eventually state probation and parole came to my house and they conducted this interview. And then he has the it was a man. He had the right to recommend yes or no about moving forward. He recommended that I could move forward. So then it goes to a public hearing at the state capitol in front of the board of pardons where you had two minutes to state why you deserved clemency. And then you go out into the hallway. Ever, ever, It's public. So there are several people there, whoever's on the docket for the day. Then you come back in and then it's a public vote. So there'll be like Ashley Potts. And then it goes down the line of yes or no, the board They go down and they say yes or no. And then, so then I made it past that process. And then my paperwork went to the governor who has the final say of whether or not you get pardoned and if they sign the paper. So the governor signed my paperwork for a pardon and I received that documentation, but a pardon means nothing. Pardon gives you the right to go seek expungement. So then uh, we had to take all the pardon information back to the court that I was convicted of the crimes and seek expungement. But it was in the same state. Correct. But you still have to go to the county and the courthouse in which where you were convicted of the crimes and request expungement. So the pardon from the governor isn't enough to expunge the record. No, no. You then have to go take the next steps. And then are there like 300 steps for that? Do you need a VHS player or what's the... What's the... What's happening (laughs) next? So the pardon didn't cost any money. It was $35 just for the application fee. But the expungement cost a couple hundred dollars, which is a barrier if you're not generating income. So, But the expungement process was not nearly as many steps. It was just a bigger financial burden. Do a lot of people get turned down or, you know, is it a high success rate? I think if you make it to the hearing, you have a pretty high success rate, but I do know a lot of people don't make it that far. And it's very tedious and it requires a lot of patience, right? This isn't a couple month long process. It 
like I said, I I filed in 2013 and I didn't get expunged till 2019. It's just indicative of how we treat people, like why it's so hard to come back from making these difficult life choices and that, you know, we take none of the other things into consideration and then we create more and more barriers and we create a group of people who just can't get past certain, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, frustrating. It's it's part of the stigma. It's part of changing the narrative around helping people to put their lives back together, which is ultimately what we want and makes them better community members. And uh, And this is just a perfect example of the barriers. What does your life look like today? Yeah, my life today is like a dream, really. I mean, I'm not saying every day of my life is perfect because that would be a lie. But I can tell you that I have a stable job, that I also have a stable part-time job, that I have a great relationship with my daughter, that I, you know, have a good relationship with my significant other, that I have amazing friends that would support me, that I have I have dogs and a cat and I love them all. And, you know, it's, it's silly to say, but I, for the longest time, I wouldn't get a pet because in my head, a pet would just die and they would leave me just like everything else. It was like all of that abandonment stuff. It, I mean, it even transcended into the thought of getting a pet. So I, it's just, my life is just free. You know, I have the freedom to get up every day and choose whether or not I want to go to work. If I don't go to work, obviously there's a consequence, but I have the freedom to make those choices. Yeah, where you once didn't. It's amazing. It's it's amazing. And, and the work that you've done and continue to do is so important. So if people want to reach out to you for more information or just connect, is there a place, a social media or somewhere where you connect with people? Yeah. So um, people can always message me on Facebook or LinkedIn or, um, and it's just Ashley Potts or, you know, individuals can feel free to send me an email. And then that's just at ashpotts1986 at AOL.com. Very original, very old. <laughs> awesome. Love that. I was born in 86 as well. Yeah. But also nobody uses AOL anymore. So there's that. Oh yeah. I didn't even catch the AOL. Oh my gosh, girl, what are you doing? What do you do? That typewriter really messed you up. It took you back. It did. You know, if it's not broke, I'm just not going to mess with it, you know? (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so, so much for being here and sharing your story. It's incredible. What you've done is incredible. And I I hope you keep getting out there and, and sharing this story. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And if I could just leave with this one last thought, and it's just don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not good enough and that you don't belong. You know, everybody matters and everybody deserves a seat at the table. I love that. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, hello. Are you? Well, hello. I'm coming to you from the closet, roughly seven feet away from you. Okay. If I was as the crow flies, as the crow flies, I would put I would put myself at about seven feet away from you in a closet. Yeah. I'm in California. Update everyone. We're in the same place. We could be on the same screen. That would be cool. But I think it's better that I'm in a weird, dark closet with clothes hanging around me to try to muffle the sound so that you get a great audio experience. But you're not just in a closet. You're laying down. You know, I. I'm comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I just want to, I want to give the like. You're holding the mic while laying down, crouched in a closet. And for those of you who don't know, Scott's got to be what six two. I'm six foot three. Six three. 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. You know, don't, that was don't, really don't rough. Don't steal sorry. that sorry. one inch, please. <laughs> sorry about that. Please don't sorry. take Rude. that. Rude. I wouldn't, I be wouldn't even be tall mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay, 6'3". He's about 6'3". This closet is not. It's small. <laughs> My shoulders do touch both sides of it. <laughs> I am crammed in tight. You are in a coffin. That's let's be real. You know, and it's we got to be careful with that. I am a little claustrophobic. <laughs> no, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Shit. No, I'm okay. Do you know why? Why? No, I don't. So my dad played keyboard growing up. Okay. And he got a new keyboard, and the box that it came in was like the perfect. It was like exactly the size of a person. Mm. And so Large. I I climbed in it. Yeah. And then somebody sat on top, and I freaked out like because it literally was the exact width of my shoulders and then the depth of my chest so it's like i barely had room even seemingly for my chest to like rise and fall and breathing and somebody like sat on the box why does why am i such a baby no like no no, absolutely not that's traumatic but you were like it's okay you what you said was it's okay because this thing happened to me and i'm like wait wait wait, oh no no not does that that make it okay i mean that's what that's what started it i think I think that's where the the, Uh, the, the little bit of claustrophobia began on that fateful day. Dak likes to show me these videos of, I don't know what they're called, but like, there are these tunnels. They tend to be men. That's all I've seen, (laughs) which checks out, that squeeze their bodies into these like... Nope. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. yep. Okay. And it's the most anxiety producing thing I can imagine. I literally am like, so walk me through... The rationale here. And I mean, you know, listen, the shit I have done. I mean, the smoke detector is still somewhere (laughs) out there. It is still beeping. So guys, okay. So if you listen to (laughs) Kate Madry, if you listen to Kate Madry's episode, you know about my debacle with the beep. I'm not saying that I'm great at all life skills. Okay. Let's just put that out there. But uh, the, the, (laughs) you're in a closet. Okay. You're in a closet, <laughs> laying down. Just relax. Wow, that escalated quickly. Yeah. Everyone, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Scott gets here, and I have this like office studio apartment thing, and it's in a in a complex. So I put the beeping thing in the part in the beeping thing. The beeping thing. That's step one. Uh, so a, step one. <laughs> it's a smoke I, detector. So I put the smoke detector <laughs> that's doing that like beeping. You got to look at this, not the beeping. There's a fire. No, I couldn't get it open. And originally, like I put it in the hallway that was still getting into the recording. I threw it into a field. <laughs> I retrieved it later. Then it mm-hmm. sat in my car for a while. It was beeping when I was driving and I was like, this is so unmanageable. Why am I living like this? <laughs> and then I can't came to the complex. I'm like, it's like this thing is following me around. There's gotta be movies <laughs> about this. So I put it next to my the tire of my car in like the parking area on <laughs> near Which like makes perfect <laughs> near sense. some grass. And then I went inside to the apartment. <laughs> I was like, I'll deal with you when I get back. Well, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, someone moved. <laughs> They either threw mm-hmm. it or kicked it or did something with it. And they did it in the vicinity of like <laughs> where the apartment office is. Scott gets here and he comes <laughs> in and he hears the beeping outside. And now we, we went to look for it. We both went to look for it. We can't find it. It's beeping no. somewhere. It's in some like bush, huge brush. <laughs> like, and it doesn't beep often enough no. for us to follow the sound. 
it's seemingly every two minutes. It's like you just get a bead on a rough location uh-huh. of it, and then it's as if the sound comes from somewhere else. Exactly. Like, Wait, what? Like echoes or something. I can't figure out what's happening, no. but all I can think about is the family whose apartment is down there, who's just slowly losing their minds. Someone right now, someone right now is 100%. You know what, though? Here's the thing. Someone is probably going to go get their hearing checked. They probably needed to do that for a while. Mm. (laughs) You know? Yeah, sure. And this threw them over the edge, right? (laughs) Now they're seeking medical attention. The the other option here is that, I mean, it has enough battery to beat, beep. It has enough enough battery to beep. So, and like we, California has a wildfire problem. Sure. It's entirely possible that a small brush fire could begin in one of these bushes. And that smoke detector (laughs) is the first line of defense. Tell me, tell me that couldn't happen. Well, I mean, I know they're doing that across the state where they're having (laughs) helicopters fly along and just throw smoke detectors into the forest, (laughs) you know, so that (laughs) you guys, I hear a beeping in the forest. You guys, adulting is so (laughs) unmanageable. I just, oh man, I just like when I heard that beeping first, I was like, good God. What is what has become of this situation? <laughs> You're like, I knew she was bad, <laughs> but I didn't know. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, it's really like, if you wonder why I have these random stories, it's because they start out with an intention that makes perfect sense in my head. And the next thing you know, the smoke detector is missing in a bush. <laughs> All I'm saying I'd like to go to assisted that living. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is there's an alarm going off somewhere. It's not an alarm. And and also in Ashley's life <laughs> there were some alarms going off. <laughs> in Ashley Potts' life. So this is this can be tricky because Ashley is born in the same year as you. She has the same sobriety year as you. She's a a business lady and an educated individual, a real a BL hap- E-I. <laughs> yeah, okay. of course. Got it. B-L-E-I. Business B-L-E-I. lady, educated individual. Got it. Right. Check. Of course. Duh. Duh. But her story is just like one of the most satisfying endings that I can possibly imagine. Like to have a life where there's like so much. I just am like, please, somebody look out for this child. Please, somebody look out for this person. Please, like somebody, somebody be trustworthy and somebody that they can count on. And what, like, I just, I want it so bad for this person. And to be told no, like so many times, nothing is going to change, and your life is not going to change, and it's going to be the same. And anybody looking at that early trajectory would not believe that things would be any different. No. And then to have her literally be teaching the classes that she was told she couldn't even take is incredible. Like, it's just the most satisfying thing I can possibly imagine. It's like a Warner Brothers MGM. They get their hands on this and you can see the movie, right? You can see the movie where it's she's downtrodden and being rejected by this educational institution. And then at the end, she's standing up in front of all the students teaching that class that she couldn't take. I can like, you can just see it in your mind. And it's an amazing story. It's hard to hear. It's hard to hear that this affliction, whatever you want to call it, there is this setting in us that would take us away from our children, the strongest bond between a mother and a child. And it would eviscerate that. It's just, it blows my mind. It blows my mind as someone in recovery who had kids in recovery to think about something that feels impossible to me. That feels impossible. It feels 
absolutely like a never happened decision. And yet I've seen people, you know, at their core, that's not who they are, but they put these substances into their body and it changes their chemical composition, their decision-making. And, you know, her mother disappearing for five years and then going to her dad, but didn't know it was her dad. And then just the abandonment over and over and over again. It's just the fact that she's come to where she's come to, that she's been able to turn that around and use those skills. It's a testament to the resiliency and power of any type of recovery, of any type of mental fitness, right? Of of learning to manage your inner atmosphere and say, okay, yeah, that that was that did happen. That was my experience. People did let me down and I'm going to try again because I'm going to choose different people or I'm different. And so my, you know, my standards are different or whatever it is, this resiliency to make a different life. And it's so, she's just so impressive. And I was really, really honored to be able to tell her story. I'm just so impressed by what she's done. And I'm, I'm so thankful that she shares her story yeah. and that she you know, made time for us and all that. We are rooting for you this week. If you're in your home and there's a smoke detector going off <laughs> oh outside God. the window and it's driving you mad, oh. you know, we feel for you. Oh. <laughs> okay. Not going off. I mean, but it's beeping. It's got check engine light. Okay. Add just enough, you know, time mm. to forget <laughs> and then remember. Ashley. Anything you want to leave the people with this week? Thank you so much for listening. We are so grateful for your listenership. If you want to know how you can support the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts. I think there's an option on Spotify to leave us a rate and review. Written reviews are podcast currency. It helps us so much. Please, please, please write us a review. It takes three minutes and it means so much to us. We are so grateful. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.